you saved my life. I can't thank you enough. This has been truly a lifesaver for me. I started 2020 at the end of my wits. I almost gave up. I didn't do much more than work at a time when life had no meaning. I started listening to the High Performance Podcast in January. Today, I feel like my whole life is ahead of me and it's mine to shape however I want it to be. You guys are an inspiration. These pods should be passed down the generations. Great job, guys, and blessings. That's from David Boyajo. Hi there. Welcome to today's High Performance Podcast episode and to David and to everybody else that has reached out telling us about the impact of this podcast over the last few months. Damien and myself and the whole team of the High Performance Podcast can't thank you enough. That is the energy. That is the reason why we keep on producing these podcasts, because we want to just keep on showing you that the people that you've looked up to, the people you've admired, the people whose story you've seen from afar have a story more similar to yours than you can possibly imagine. You can learn from them and they can learn from you. Now, on Wednesday, we have some huge news coming from the High Performance Podcast. We're going to drop an episode of the pod on Wednesday. Just make a note now to come back on Wednesday to find out the big news from the High Performance Podcast. So it's huge news on Wednesday and today, huge honesty. Have a listen to what you can expect from today's High Performance Podcast. The reason why there's so few people can win relentlessly as as they sacrifice even family to get to you know snooker's my life is number one that, that came first even before my wife my kids everything obviously they ended to the detriment of my marriage and everything you know it was all about me it's very cold but it has to be that hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We've been talking about this among the team all week. We're so excited for you to hear this. Um, look, we think that people are so honest on the High Performance Podcast, but for someone to come on and speak with the kind of total honesty that you're going to hear today is, is, is still rare, the level at which he goes to. Um, so I'd love you to feed back to us what you think of this episode. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram. You can check us out on YouTube. You can go to highperformancepodcast.co.uk. But however you interact with us, where it all starts is by just sitting, listening and learning with the High Performance Podcast. So on that note, here's this week's episode. 
Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Now, everyone needs a professor in their life. Damien Hughes is mine, an author, a lecturer who combines a practical and academic background to help teams and individuals create a high performance life. And today, Damien, we're with one of those rare individuals that didn't just win they dominated. And that is something that in any walk of life, sport or business, we see it very rarely. Yeah, I'm really excited about this particular interview, Jake. We've spoken to a lot of people that wrestle with this idea of emotional control, being able to almost switch off your emotions and be able to focus diligently on what they do. And today's guest is somebody that seems to perfect that. So I'm really excited to explore more about it. Me too. Let's do it then. Uh, Faldo, Woods, Schumacher, LeBron, Hamilton, Mayweather people who dominated their chosen field. And Stephen Hendry is right up there. Seven world titles in nine years in the 90s. But how did he get there? How did he stay there? And why, in his 50s, has he decided to go back there? And crucially, what can you, listening to this podcast, learn from his success? Well, welcome to the pod, Stephen Hendry. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much. It wasn't a bad bunch of names you just listed and I came <laughs> after that. That was very nice. Yeah, I thought so. Which one did you like the most? Um, Schumacher? Bit of LeBron, yeah, Schumacher. I think. I think, um, yeah, people like Schumacher, Faldo. Again, individuals really uh, on they're on their own when when they're competing. Schumacher, like myself, seven world titles. That's I kind of like that ring to it as well. But um, Tiger Woods, massive hero of mine. People are just like just couldn't get enough of winning. Just greedy, really. Right. Well, let's talk about that in detail then, and we'll start as we always do on this podcast with the same question. In your mind, what is high performance? Picking up that trophy at, at the end of end of the event—that's your job. That was my job. Um, it was almost like um, people always, you know, people always say to me, "Oh, there was no emotion. There was no like crying or, la- you know, real smiles or anything." I, I sometimes found it difficult to put on a genuine smile after I won the big titles because, to me, it was the it was the the climax of all the work I'd put in, and it was my job to go there and win. Um, and and sometimes after a one on a Sunday night, I'd be back practicing the Monday for the next one because I was I had that greed, which I think individual sportsmen, if they're going to be serial winners, have to have. They can never be satisfied, and I was never satisfied. So, do you think that anyone can learn to have that that greed, as you call it, or do you think that was something that you were you have? It's an innate part of you that meant not only could you get there and be the world champion, you could get there relentlessly, consistently. I don't think that's something you can teach. No, I think, you know, the, the sportsman that you listed there, it's why very few in, in all sports, especially individual sports, can keep winning and winning and winning and dominate because I've seen so many players in, in snooker. Um, and and that's, I mean, golf's my other favorite sport, watching a lot of golf. They win a tournament, then they disappear. You say, what happened to that that player? Then, you know, the, the, you know they, they haven't kept on winning. So I don't know where it came from, to be honest. But um, and when you say it, what do you de- what do you describe as it? What is the thing that, that meant it kept that, happening? That greed, that never being satisfied, that always wanting to win another one. You know, as I said before, you're winning on a Sunday night and being back in the practice table the next day. Very few people can do that. Um, I mean, granted, in the beginning, I had a manager who cracked a whip and, and made sure I was I was not going to take a holiday or, or relax. But when I started to get success, then it was in me. I, had, I wanted to win the next one. I wanted to win the next one. Um, I wanted to win, you know, every tournament. Um, and, and, I, and I think the reason why, you know, the, the, in, in snooker over the past 20, 30 years, 40 years, 
there's only really been Steve Davis, then myself, and you know Ronnie to an extent, John Higgins to an extent, Mark. But they've kind of because they've been in a, an era with themselves, they've not one not one of them has dominated to the way Stephen Stephen I did. But if we go back to the origins of it, Stephen, I know that you started playing when you were 13. You described how you got that table at a relatively young age. So you're describing that almost mechanical nature of winning at a world level. Mm. When did the seeds of like needing to win, needing to dominate start before that? I got this small table two weeks before my 13th birthday and just literally spent every minute that I could on that table. I just loved it. It was just something that clicked. And what was it you loved about it? I don't know. It's, it's very difficult to understand it. At 13, it was just like, I just, I found I could just get down on the table. And naturally, you know, you see beginners in going clubs and they're, you know, after they've searched for a queue that's straight and for half an hour and then they just get down. They just don't look like they belong there. But I, I just felt comfortable on the table. I knew, you know, my dad didn't have to tell me anything. I basically just put my left hand down the table. I put the queue on and it just felt natural. Within a couple of weeks, I was making 50 breaks, just playing. Then I started watching on TV, learning from the players. But I started to get pleasure from being better than people, even if it was just family, friends. I got this thing, I'm actually better than people at something. And that sort of, I think, put something in there. And had you had that experience of being exceptional or better than people before that, or was snooker the first place you found that feeling? Yeah, snooker was definitely the first. I played football and badminton at primary school, been part of teams, but never excelled, never stood out. Not the bottom, but not the top. So snooker was the first thing in my life that, you know, I, I was a bit different to everyone else. That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like it gave you a feeling you'd never had before. Mm. And so you stuck with snooker because you wanted more of that feeling, like a drug, I guess. Yeah. And I think all through my teenage years, I mean, people always say, do, do you regret you, you missed out on what normal teenage boys um, do? You know, parties, girlfriends, drinking for the first time, whatever it is. And I never felt I missed out. I just wanted to play snooker. You know, as soon as school was finished, sometimes before school finished, you know, I just wanted to play. The only thing in my mind was getting on that table. Wow. Was it necessary, though, that sacrifice? Look, all three of us having this conversation are parents, right? All three of us want our kids to live an amazing life and basically do what you did. Find, mm. We'd all love our kids to find their thing, wouldn't we? Yeah. And excel at it. And we keep watching them do things and go, oh, that's not quite for them. But maybe they'll find something eventually. So... Was it necessary for you to have the sacrifice to go along with finding your thing? I think so, yeah. Again, as parents, you probably wouldn't give the same advice again, but I was fortunate that I had parents who didn't really say, stop playing snooker, you've got, you've got homework to do, you've got exact... They, they, you know, whether that makes them bad parents, I don't, I don't know. But they, they, I think very early on, my dad especially, through taking me around clubs and stuff and people talking, I think he, had, he knew there was something there. So it didn't stop me playing snooker. It didn't say, no, you're only going to play at weekends because you need to study and all that. So, yeah, I, I didn't. The, the sacrifice was um, probably necessary to keep improving quickly because obviously 33 years later, I turned pro. So I did improve very, very quickly through the sort of junior and amateur scene. Um, and if I not played as much snooker to study or do other stuff, then possibly the, the rise wouldn't have been as, as quick. We can focus on the sacrifices you made. What I'm interested in, Stephen, is what did it give you? So this enhanced status of being exceptional at something and being recognised, what do you feel that offered you as an individual? Different things, really. It, it, it does give you a bit of um, confidence in yourself. Um, in, that, in those days in snooker, you're, you're mixed with people who are much older than you. 
Um, you know, I was playing in clubs sometimes in kind of British Legion clubs where I wasn't supposed to be in. You know, playing league matches, they basically smuggle me in, play my two frames and straight back out again. You had to be 18 to be in. But I think spending your the whole of my teenage life and young life around older people made me sort of a bit more streetwise or, or more, you know, wise, wiser than my age in terms of just life, basically, not in terms of academical stuff, because I left school with no qualifications, you know, so that's, <laughs> that, 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 that went out the window. But um, spending life with, with like older people and stuff, and then just experiencing things, competition, winning things, it makes you feel like you, you've got something that's, um, yeah, it gives you that little bit of inner confidence. I guess it's about feeling special and feeling a bit different to everybody else. And, like, and it's almost embarrassing to talk about something that I experienced when I'm comparing it to a multiple world champion. But I remember when I was living in Norwich and I first started doing little bits and pieces on the television and I'd go like in a bar or something and literally only one or two people would go, oh, that's that guy that does that show that I can't remember his name or even the programme he's on. But that would give me this like feeling of, oh, there's something a bit, there's something a bit special about this. Mm. And that then led to, right, so I'm not going to get drunk tonight because that might be embarrassing and, I need to, and I'm going to get up early tomorrow and I'm going to try a bit harder at my job because it will feed into that feeling of being different. And now I say to my kids all the time, I say, look, have this mindset that you're a bit more special you're, or that you look at all those other kids in your class and that, that's them, but you are different because I want them to have that feeling because I think it's really powerful, that feeling that you are not normal. There's something unique about you. And even if you're right or wrong, What's the point in not thinking that? It's a big part of your identity. Yeah. To take that theme that Jake's talking about then, Stephen, that you've gone from being a middle-of-the-road kid at school to finding a place where you're suddenly exceptional. You've got adults mm. acknowledging your talent. How did you make that transition? Because I imagine that was more difficult for people around you to, to deal with your success than for you personally. I mean, I didn't. I didn't really take it take it in a lot. I was just playing snooker, and you know, but there's 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 a t there's a time, obviously, in the beginning. There's a, a transition where snooker st stops being a hobby and starts becoming a job. Um, but at that time, through my teenagers, it was just a, I was just loving what I was doing. I mean, I was just playing snooker. I was getting to, you know, leave school on a Friday night to go down to London or wherever to play in proams and, and not come back on a Monday. I was getting allowed to do this. I mean, I was, I was fortunate again, my parents, but the school was quite, you know, because they'd seen me in the papers, the local papers winning things. And I mean, financially, I, I supported myself since I was 13 and a half, 14. Yeah. My parents haven't had to buy me anything, you know, because I was winning monies and, and, and just buying my own clothes and stuff. And so it makes you independent, makes you feel independent and um it was quite surreal i suppose when you're looking back on it but Did you feel time, like it almost happened to you rather than you made it happen do you know what i mean by that um like you just were playing snooker and this yeah. thing you just almost stepped onto this roller coaster ride and you were just in your mind i was just playing snooker but yeah it was was, taking you incredible places i wasn't thinking at that stage that wow this is going to be a career i'm going to be win world championships so there's no strategy at this age no not at all it was just basically it was my dad and i traveling around the country playing pro-ams playing amateur tournaments i was just loving it because i was playing snooker i had no thoughts of i'm not getting any qualifications what am i going to do in my life i, I wasn't thinking ahead to the next tournament the next weekend that that was all that was my only my only thoughts yeah it was i was just kind of like going along with it basically but that can't happen forever, though, can it? No. Because the number of people that we speak to who have not done what you've done even once, not been a world champion even once, and they say, oh, you know, I, I really enjoyed being a young racing driver or a young snooker player or a young footballer, but I never realised that 
to carry on that trajectory, at one point, the hard work had to kick in mm. as well. So when was the moment that you realised it had to be about more than just playing snooker and enjoying it? I, I won the, the Scottish Amateur Senior title at 14 and then again at 15. Um, and in those days, the only way getting your professional ticket was to either win your national championship, which I did, or win the World Amateur Championship. So at 15, I won it the second time. I had a choice whether to enter the World Amateur Championship, which I thought I could win, but then I might not win and I miss a chance to turn pro and then I might not win the, the next year. So this this guy, Ian Doyle, who had a snooker club in Stirling who had been to, to play some junior tournaments, was getting into snooker. His company sponsored the Scottish Amateur Senior title. He had a kind of meeting with my dad. He wanted to get into snooker and he wanted to take over my career, basically, be a manager, take care of sponsorship, um, all that sort of stuff. So between my dad, Ian, and I, was, and my mum, I was saying, we had to take a decision whether should we turn pro now or stay as an amateur. Um, we made the decision that I couldn't learn anymore as an amateur. Let's just get in with, with the, the big boys. And I'd always played my best snooker in the biggest occasions. So we turned pro at 16, but I was still practicing in a place called Miller's in Broxburn where my mates were. So we were kind of like, I was, I was there all day, but we'd go in and maybe have a couple of hours. It wouldn't be serious. We'd have a few laughs, stop for a couple of hours, maybe play some three-card brag and play the fruit machines. And just, it wasn't a structured thing. And unbeknownst to me, my manager had come into the club just to see what I was doing. And very quickly, he, he basically said, if I'm going to back you, you know, you're going to work your bollocks off. I've done it throughout my career, and the only way you're going to get there is, is, in his opinion at the time, is to properly work at this game. My dad didn't totally agree. He thought I could do it without this you know, this uh, regimen of, of, of work. So, But basically, Ian took me out of the club where I was to his club in Stirling, which is probably 30 miles away from where I was. So my dad had to take me there every day, drop me off at 10 in the morning, and I'd stay there till 6 at night with an hour for lunch. And I just practiced on my own seven days a week. Wow. Um, I hated it. First of I just hated it because this was just like, this is, you know, talk about stop being a hobby and becoming a job. This became a job. This wasn't like playing snooker because I wanted to. This was, you had to be there at this time and you had to leave at that time. And it was, it was, yeah, it was just so hard to, to, to play. But and did you have a coach, Stephen, when you were no. in this club? No, and I didn't have a coach until later on in my career. Right. Um, in the beginning, I learned everything from watching TV on my small table and to try and do the shots. You couldn't because small tables are, are rubbish. You can't play. But that's how I learned, basically, from watching like Jimmy, Steve Davis and stuff. But this this sort of relentless work ethic, I mean, his office was like connected. He had hardware business connected. Half the building was that and half the building was a snooker club. And he used to come out every half an hour check I was practicing. Really? You know, just put, poke his head through the door and check I was still there. But literally within... A month or two months, I could feel my game getting sharper. And although it was hard, um, you know, after about you know a few, I started to feel that like my game was this. this I was getting better. And, and the first tournament I played in was a Scottish Professional Championship. Um, I'd had va various sort of exhibitions with the top players, and, and I'd always get beat. And this was the Scottish Professional was my first tournament after this this job started, and I won it comfortably. And it was just like, wow, this is taking my game to another level. And we, we speak a lot about this, you do, that one of the most crucial aspects for anyone in life is evidence. So it's pretty mm. shitty to spend hours and hours and hours on your own knocking snooker balls around. Yeah. But it's not shitty when you then go and win a tournament because of that. And it feels like as soon as Stephen, Stephen saw the evidence, that's yeah. when it made a, a difference. 
Well, this is where the research comes from that has often been sort of misappropriated about the 10,000 hours rule. So mm. the guy, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Stephen, around. I've heard of it, yeah. There's a guy called um, Anders Ericsson that studied violinists. And he found that to be world class, you needed to invest 10,000 hours in it. And I think people misappropriate it and think that it's just about hard work. Mm. But I think for a static sport, like where you're learning technique, like snooker around and dynamic, like football, there is some, some relevance in the 10,000 hours. And it sounds like that was your first immersion in proper mm. hard work of investing yeah. those hours in it that you saw immediate results from it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, my, my manager, there's no, there's no way he had any scientific reason for behind it. He was just a, this Scottish businessman who'd worked his nuts yeah. off throughout his life. And he thought, well, that's the way everyone else must do it to get success. There was no, um, as I say, I don't think he'd put any research into it. Basically, I think he thought, if I'm going to back you and sponsor you, you're going to work. I'm putting it in, so you're going to put sure. it in. Um, you know, the, the practice can only work, I think. You, you need the, the, the three ingredients. You, know, you need, the, the obviously, natural talent to go with it. And you need the, the ability to play under pressure. You need those three things together. Well, that was a phrase... You need to that, enjoy the pressure. Yeah, but there was a phrase that you used quite casually in, in that last bit where you were explaining that journey where you said, I always played my best when I came under pressure. Mm. And you said that very um, matter-of-fact. And yet... That isn't a matter-of-fact statement that when you come under pressure, you rise to the occasion. Would you explain where you learned that ability just to be able to turn it on in those big moments? I, I, I have no idea, is the honest answer, where, where that came from, because none of my parents were, you know, done, done anything in front of crowds or, or, or anything that excelled or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the this, this Scottish amateur senior title you know you play the tournament through the through clubs and by the time you got to the final they put it in a, in a venue put a table and put seating around it and I saw it was played bright I just I just loved that you know I just I just felt comfortable there so how did you process that where you're there you're in a big final this is your first title you can win as still an adolescent competing against men what was going through your head when you turned up for that final it's very hard to put into words I think just excitement I think uh, excitement about winning yeah, excitement about just playing in, in, in that venue, I think. And you just I just walk walk in and see the seats and see the table and thought, wow, it's, it's, that looks amazing. You know, that, that was that was my thought. That looks, you know, I just can't wait to get out there. Did it look like you'd seen on TV, which was where you'd got all your um, coaching from? Yeah, yeah. No, but not even, I wouldn't even think about TV. I just think about, well, I just can't wait to get out there and play where through your career, your players that are, that are, that are happy being on the outside tables and as soon as they get in the TV table, I mean, I'm doing commentary work now and you see them, they're, they're like a rabbit in headlights, they just don't want to be out there. Um, they just want to be where no one can, can see them, that's where they're comfortable. But there was no thought of me being out of my comfort zone. But what I mean by that, Stephen, is that you said that most of your coaching was done through watching TV, mm. which naturally is focusing on the big games yeah. where the, you've got the crowd around you and the seating and things like that. So did it just feel that that was exactly what you would expect that you'd only ever studied big games so it was almost that it felt natural for you yeah I think in terms of watching the other players I was like it wasn't so much the surroundings it was just the, their game I wanted to learn it's the shots I wanted to learn obviously when you watch something like the Crucible and you see that atmosphere yeah there is that you walk out and you know you kind of think this is the big time kind of thing but I just did it you know, it's it's very. I'm sorry, I don't sound like there's some magic secret in, in this, but it was just no, something I that, I, that I, I just, think it's fascinating yeah, that yeah, there yeah. isn't a magic secret to it because I think that there will be people who practice as hard as you, have the mm. desire as much as you do, but for whatever reason, when they're under pressure, 
they crumble. Mm. And there will be sportsmen who and women whose entire careers have kind of been pulled apart by the fact that when it really mattered, mm. they couldn't deliver. And they would have investigated every single possible facet of themselves to try and find the answers to that. So are you saying there was no psychological technique? You didn't have to calm yourself down. You didn't take a breath. You didn't remind yourself that this feels almost inevitable that you were going to be competing on a stage like this or that all the hours that you were putting in practicing meant that you could be completely relaxed because you'd done the hard work where the lights weren't and there wasn't a crowd and you'd, you'd put in the hard yards. You didn't have to have any of those thoughts? No, I think I think with my first professional tournament, I think I, I was nervous. I was out of my comfort zone a little bit because playing amateur tournaments, you're, you're going to snooker clubs and, and the conditions are not great sometimes there's no referees and stuff and there's you know my first tournament I think I played a guy called Barry West and, and obviously you've got to have full you know evening wear on the table's perfect the cloth's perfect you got a referee and you know I felt a little bit I thought you know this is different but I, I, I loved it but I was I just you know, I couldn't it took me you know, my first season, you know, I lost more matches than 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 I won. Simplified, they were better players than me at that stage. You know, they were they were professionals, and I was still I'd just turned pro. So that, that there was obviously that reason. Jimmy White was my idol when I first started playing. When I first got on the Wii team, I watched it because the way he played, the flair, the shots, and there was a tournament every year where the Scottish professional champion got a sort of token entry into the Scottish. This so the seven best players in the world would play and won Scotsman, so they an eight-man tournament, invitation tournament. And I was drawn against Jimmy White in the first round at 16 or 17. And I got beat 5-0. And basically, I just sat in my chair in awe of Jimmy because he was my hero. And, oh, my God, when I got off, did I get a bollocking from my dad and my manager for, like, you know, if this is what you're going to do, just sit and, like, watch these, like, you're just, you may as well finish now. And it was a, it was a wake-up call straight away that, that if I was to be... I said, you know, I've got to get out of this, like, them and me kind of thing. And that that was one of the best things I think my manager did, that everywhere we went, even in my first season, we stayed in the same hotels as the top players. So I was around that because a lot of the players at Turn Pro would stay in bed and breakfast and stuff. And then they'd play, come and play Steve Davis, Jim, and they'd be, they'd be above them already because they're all, you know, he's staying in a better hotel. He's got a better, yeah, you know, yeah. everything. So... That was a very clever thing to do, to put me on a sort of level playing field in that respect. I've read that you famously didn't associate with other players once you were mm. dominating the sport. So when did you make the decision to do that as opposed to hoovering up as much information around them and understanding their, their lifestyle and habits? Again, it was, a, it was a sort of joint thing with my manager and I. You know, I said that Jimmy White was my hero, but when I started watching snooker more and more, Steve Davis was the guy who was winning, and I thought, that's the guy who I want to be. I don't want to be... Jimmy plays all the good shots, but he's the man that's winning. So we, we kind of looked at hit, you know Steve and Barry Hearn's approach, where Steve, you know, the, the practice, the dedicating your whole life, you know, having no outside interests, no, you know, girls, parties, whatever, um, and just keeping yourself apart from everyone else keeping yourself like aloof. So when people did come to play, they had no connection with you at all. They seen you as someone who was above them because you didn't associate with them. So you were playing psychological mind games before you ever got on the base. Yeah, I, I think it's very important. I think later on in my career, when I started to, you know, relax a bit and have, you know, go out for dinner and stuff, that there was definitely a part of my downfall was was becoming friends with, <laughs> friends with people. Yeah. Um, it's difficult sometimes because later on in the career, there was so much traveling, you'd end up being in the same plane, you'd be in the same hotels, whatever, and, and it's it would get more more difficult. But um, 
yeah, in, in, the, in the beginning, it was a definite thing. It was just Ian, the guy who was my road manager, and me would eat together. We'd just go back to practice and then go back to the hotel and, and we wouldn't mix with anyone else. What, what I like about this is that it obviously had an effect on the people you were playing because they were looking at you like you're an enigma thinking, mm. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he stayed. I don't know what he eats before he plays or how he's going to play. I, I can't sort of break the facade. But it feels like all, it was also quite an important thing from your perspective as well. It, it, it gave you a bit of armour to know that they knew nothing about you. It, it moved you in your head above them. Yeah, I think so. And, and uh, then there was part of me that thought I'm missing out and stuff because like a little bit more into my professional career, maybe 17, 18, 19, I could see players going out for, for dinner and having a drink and everything. And a little part of me was thinking I'm, I'm, you know, I'm missing out a bit. Fun. But then I was winning. You know, Jimmy White, again, going, going back to him, but like, you know, he was, he, he didn't win. Yeah. He did win. Of course, he won events through his career, but he wasn't. Yeah, but he famously had, lost all the finals that he competed in, didn't he? That was the sort of big thing for him. Yeah. And you, you talk about people who don't realize, I mean, he's been in six finals and not converted yeah. once. There has yeah. to be something that's not, that's missing there. If I'd been in six world finals and not won one of them, I'd want to know why. But I've heard people that have worked with Jimmy White in the past talk about this idea that he, he that it almost reconciled him with that sense that, that's just what he does. He like he, he he blows the big moment. That chaos is and people love him for it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's part of his charm. I suppose. So, what was your identity? So, how would you have described your identity then? Pretty cold, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, miserable is as a word that gets. So was that a conscious me. decision? That cold, aloof. No, that that was just my natural at the table. Was it? That was just my natural way. Um, I I didn't, you know, I wasn't there to laugh and joke and 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 oh, happy. I knew I knew I had personality and saying, but when I was in the table, I wasn't there to do to do that sort of stuff. I was there to win. And I think if you look at snooker nowadays, and and I think most sports actually, the competitors are getting a lot younger and more like single minded. They're just they're there to win. People always say to me, well, there's no personalities in the game anymore. There is, but just when they're on the table, they're there, to, they're there to win. And I think Steve Davis was that. And I think after Steve Davis, again, I kind of learned a bit of, of, of Steve and, and just having this not show any emotion. In practice, I would, I would show emotion. If I missed a shot, I'd you know, bang my cue and swear, whatever. But when you go in that, that table in the, in the ring, you, you can't show your opponent any, any weakness. And you learned that yourself because I remember hearing Andre Agassi talk about his dad had drilled him relentlessly that he wasn't allowed to show emotion and things like mm. that. And that was somebody exerting influence on him. But but you came to that conclusion on your own in those hours in the, in the yeah. snooker hall. Yeah, again, from, you know, watching TV learning, watching Steve Davis learning, watching the way he was at the table. Not if he missed a ball, he'd just turn around and walk back to his seat. There was times where I have shown, and you, sometimes you just can't help it. It's human nature. It just, you know, it's... You can't, you're not a robot. You can't just program it and that nothing's going to affect you. But in time, that's something that you can work on, I believe. I don't think you can work on being able to play your best under pressure, but I think you can work on trying not show, you know, as, as, as much emotion. My, my, you know, even go through junior events and, and, you know, I would see fathers like, you know, just castigating their, their sons and that from missing and like, and my dad never did. The only thing my dad ever done um, was, I was probably not even 14 in a junior event and I missed a shot and I went back and I had my head down and he just went, get your head up. And that's the only thing he ever, he ever, oh. he never, he never, never criticized me ever. If I played a bad match, we're in the car going home, he would never say anything. Um, the only, that's the only one thing he ever did was just keep your head up. Wow. It feels to me like control 
is a real recurring theme in your career, whether it's the hours and hours on the bays, practicing, getting yourself ready, whether it's making sure you're not going out for drinks with your fellow pros the night before a game, whether it's not smiling and showing emotion when you play an incredible shot in the final of the World Snooker Championship. At all times, emotional control was kind of at the centre, I think, of, of your success, was it? Yeah, definitely. So did um, you enjoy it? Enjoy the... The process. You enjoyed the winning, the moment you lifted the trophy or the moment you potted the winning shot. But did you enjoy the process getting to that point? I think the practice was always hard to do. I mean, if you, a snooker table never changes. Mm. Um, and that's one thing later on in my career where I stopped practicing as much because even in golf practice, it must be boring hitting hundreds and hundreds of balls. But on a given day, the wind could be in a different direction. So it's still different. And the snooker table never changes. So you're doing the same routines for 30, 40 years. That's one of the reasons why, why I stopped playing. I just couldn't do that anymore. So I don't think you ever... You know, if someone says to me, oh, I just love playing seven hours a day, seven days a week on my own, I don't think they do. I don't think you you do it because you see, I, I, I was fortunate. I see, I, I got an end, I got a, you know, a result from it. You know, I was winning. But, I, you know, you, you see these, you know, I hate to say the word journeyman pros, it's to still do that and don't get how they, they, they I always admire people who can keep doing it. Yeah. When there's nothing coming at the end of it. You know, I was getting success and and, and that made me want to practice more. If I didn't get the success, then would I be able to keep doing that? I don't know. So how hard was it then when you didn't get the success? The first time you were doing exactly what you've always done and you weren't winning games of snooker? Uh, well, if I take it forward to when I started winning, yeah, if, if I had a loss, it would, be, it would be very difficult to go in the next day. And, and so I mean, the odd time, I would, if I played really well, I wouldn't go in the next day, but I'd go in the day after that. And I just, you just had to, you know, that, that's, again, you know, this is my job. You know, I'm, I'm a professional snooker player. I've got to practice. And, and again, I, I had a, a manager who cracked a whip and said, you know, you've you got to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And then I would win the next one. And then so every time you had a disappointment and then you came back from that one, that would give you even more satisfaction. Um, so you became comfortable with failure? No, never. I was never comfortable with failure. <laughs> really? You never no. saw it as part of a process um, of no, learning? No, I no. thought... Everything time I lost a match, it was the end of the world. And, you know, I, I still, um, you know, I used to say in press conferences, a disaster, you know, and people say, no, oh, there's the worst things happen in the world and everything. But I always hate that when people say that because I think as a sportsman, that is the worst thing that's happening in the world at that precise moment For you, yeah. that you've lost a match or you've lost, you've lost that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrific. And I've, and I've done press conferences where I literally one word answers and just get out of there and, and, and sulk for three or four days, not speak to anyone. So, yeah, losing is, is the hardest part for me of being a sportsman. The fact that you can sit here now, though, Stephen, and, and you're so eloquent and you're rounded and you do seem to have a greater perspective on life than just what happened on, on a snooker table is obviously testimony to the fact that you have learned to process defeat in some way or, mm. or the end of a career. When did you learn to do that then? I won my, my last world championship in '99, um, and I think the following the rest of my career, I won. I, I, I retired in 2012. I think the rest of my career, I, I won maybe half a dozen events from then to to the end of my career. And I, I think my whole process relaxed from 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 the beginning. The practice was more sp sporadic. I mean, I would still do if I felt there was a tournament coming up. I would still do that. You know, but I'd, I'd only do it maybe four or five days before, really put the hours where it was my whole life before. Sure. It was seven days a week, four weeks, uh, you know, every month. You do get used to defeat. It doesn't, it doesn't, and it's a different kind of hurt, really. 
I don't read many books. I read Agassiz's book, and he says that the pain of defeat is a, a bigger sensation than the, the thrill of winning, and it is. It, it's far more. Um, winning, I would take for granted. Defeat, I would suffer for days. But there's a, di got a difference between it, it's sort of hurting and you want to do something about it to near the end of the career when you get used to it and it's a kind of more of a depression right gets in where you think i can't win anymore and that's in this is and then you get used to defeats used to playing badly um and that was when I, at the end i thought i can't take this anymore hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So when did you make the decision to stop referring to yourself as a snooker player then? I don't know. I, I mean, I still think I'm a snooker player now. I mean, people say, what do you do? I'm a snooker player. You know, I mean, right. I, it's, snooker is, is what I do. Um, it's what I'm best at. Okay, I'm not a professional snooker player at the moment, but um, I still see myself as a snooker player. The reason I ask that question is my sense is that if we'd had spoken to you during your 20s, you would have been singularly a snooker mm. player, whereas I think it's a both-and mm. perspective now. You're a snooker player and mm. you're a, a father. You're mm. an amateur golfer. There's things like that. Yeah. And I'm wondering, when did you start to add on those other aspects of... I think um, obviously, you know, normal life things like, you know, you had, I had a, a girlfriend who became a wife, then you have a family, life changes. And I always, I always fought against that. People say, oh, you're going to get married, that's it, that's the end of your career, and all that's, you know, you have kids, that's it. Um, and I always fought against that. I, was, I, I, I still kept I was determined to keep practicing. The reason why there's so few people can win relentlessly is, is they sacrifice even family to get to, you know, snooker's my life is number one. That, that came first. Even before my wife, my kids, everything, obviously they ended to the detriment of my marriage and everything. You know, it was all about me. It's very cold, but it has to be that. If I look at all the top sportsmen, individual sportsmen, many of them are still married to the same women. Very, very few. Very few. Very yeah. few. So uh, obviously, it, it ended up the breakdown of your marriage and you probably don't see your children as often as mm -hmm. you would have done when you were in a house with them every single day. Mm -hmm. Would you still have that same approach to life if you did it all over again do you think you couldn't have achieved what you did as a snooker player without that yeah definitely right. I couldn't have achieved I couldn't have been the, the, the winner I was um and and being um there as well as so here's an interesting one then if you had your time again would you win less games of snooker be at home more and and be married to your wife still and have a sort of family life or is the winning which we spoke about right at the beginning the thing that you feel you were put on this earth to do to be yeah, a winner. Definitely. I mean, right. I, there's going to be a lot of people watching this thinking, what an, what an absolute <laughs> cold son of a bitch. But that's, yeah, that's what I was putting. I was putting this out to, to win snooker matches, win world titles, and, and be as dedicated as I was to be the best. And 
yeah, given the same decisions, I'd, I'd make the same decisions again. Um, whether that makes me a horrible person or not, you know, other people can decide that. But I, for me, that's, I made and that you're decision. you're certain you couldn't have done both? Who can tell? But I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Only looking at myself, looking at the other people that I admired, um, you know, the Tiger Woodses, the Faldos, Steve Davis, they wanted to be the best and dominate the sport and to everything else not that we didn't care or love these people but that has to come second yeah. that has to come second if you want to do what i did yeah i think it's really refreshing jay to to hear that honesty you know i think we we live in a world where people think you can be everything and the reality is it's a world mm. where you have to prioritize and and, yeah. and your decisions are pretty clear I, I do really want to talk to you about the period where you 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 struggled with your snooker mm -hmm. um because you're so in control all the time. You're, you're someone that knows if you can control everything, you can keep on winning games of snooker. So when you didn't win for a long period and eventually decided to walk away from the game, how did you reconcile that in your own brain? Because the evidence was still there that you have the natural ability. You were a multiple world champion. How did you cope with that? And what strategies did you use to try and recover from, from, from the issues when playing? It was very difficult because I became... And also run. You know, I used, I used to enjoy in the 90s being people talking about you yeah. being the favourite. Well, you win. were special and from the moment you started playing, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. So then, I wasn't, no, so then I'm not special. You know, I'm used yeah. to people saying, who's the favourite for this? So Stephen's going to win. Stephen's going to win. Stephen's the best player in the world. Stephen's world champion. Stephen's world number one. So all of a sudden, oh, Stephen, he's, 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 he, can't, he can't play anymore. He's not, he's not the same player anymore. He's, you know, he's never going to win another tournament. He's slipping down the rankings. So you get all that positive feedback. Then all of a sudden you get all this negative feedback constantly. And whenever you lose another match, then it's another like, you know, is he gone? He's gone. It's, and then it's, that's all this positive is, is feeding you. It's feeding your confidence on the way up. I mean, and then obviously the negative is, is feeding you as well, but it's, it's keeping you down. So it, it's um, for me, that was very, it was very difficult. That just to not um, be com you know competitive was 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 the thing for me. You know, people always said, you know, why did you retire? And so you know, when you were still, you could play. Um, for me, winning was the enjoyment. You know, st I once Steve kept on playing after me, long after me, and I said, "What are you doing?" I said, "You're losing to people who shouldn't be in the same table as you." And he said, "I just treat it as a day out, and and yeah. see what." I, and I, and I, you I, couldn't I, do I that. couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Could you do that now, now that you've announced that you're going to return to snooker? Could you what, treat it as a day out or is this about coming back to win? Well, that's going to be a big test <laughs> for me because I, I, you know, I made it public that the reason I retired is because I couldn't win and that was the enjoyment I got from snooker. And then it's a different situation now. The slate's clean. It's not a full-time comeback. I'm not going to practice six, seven hours a day. I'm going to, pra I'm going to have to start practicing regularly yeah, but this again. doesn't sound like you though. We've just spent no. hours talking about total <laughs> control, practice for hours, show no emotion, don't speak to other players, and it's all about winning. Yeah. Why are you now telling us it's the total opposite? I, I think I think I want to see, it's part curiosity. I want to yeah. see if I can, as I say, I'm doing stuff differently technically um, with, 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 with a coach. And um, so that's starting to like make me hit the ball properly again, which I wasn't doing before for, for whatever reason um you know I, I quoted yips in my book it was a thing when just decelerating through the ball not striking so consequently it's kind of that I've, I've not been aiming correctly and uh, i'm not going to bore you with the technical stuff but yes yeah, so it's about citing things properly or whatever i still don't understand it all 100 percent because i did snooker naturally you know when i started i just played and now you've got to sort of 
practice a, a sort of, you know, a routine. But this is the flexible perspective on life, isn't it? Very much. But I'm interested in the idea of coaching. So you're learning a different way mm. of playing. Did you have a coach first time round? I've had, I've had three or four coaches through my career. Uh, my first coach was a, a, an old guy called Frank Callan, who, who's passed away now, but he was a, someone who coached Steve Davis. And um, I went with him because I didn't feel my long potting was consistent enough. Um, so he kind of changed my, my cue action a bit. I was with him for a few years and then won most of my world titles with him, actually. Then I had a break. Then went with Terry Griffiths, who changed my cue action completely and got back to world number one. Didn't win a world championship, but went back from seven or eight world back to world number one again. And then I had a coach uh, called Chris Henry near the end of my career, actually at the very end as well, who tried to in instill some sort of sports psychology as well into it. But when I walked into an arena, um, say the World Championship final, whatever, it just came naturally for me to be focused and I'd just switch on. Where to try and put that in sort of fake. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, process, I, I found yeah. it hard to 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 get that. Um, you know, he did a lot of things and introduced like meditation and visualization and and um, he suggested watching videos of my old successes to try and put that in there, but. I said to him, I says, all that does it tell me how shit I am now. <laughs> That's all I got from it. Right, and that okay. was, it was, it was a truly, I think you have to, these sort of things, you really have to buy in sure, and be a, a certain, yeah. to take that stuff in. One technique they often use in, say, sports psychology is they talk about, think of it as a brick wall and every brick adds up to a, right. a whole wall. So the, and the hours of practice, the, the effort that you were putting in, gave you that evidence that therefore was the scaffolding for your confidence. And it sounds to me that those hours in the Sterling snooker hall mm. gave you that, that ability to just go and play naturally because you yeah. had the evidence that you could do it. Yeah. I'm interested in the fact that you're going to make a comeback, but you're also saying you're not going to build that brick wall with the same level of diligence of the practice and the hours that you're going to put into it. So why do you expect to get a different result this time? I mean, I'm saying my plan at the moment is not to practice that long. Um, if I suddenly do, that, if I continue with this um, process of, of the technical stuff and, and my game gets to a stage where I think, well, I'm playing the way I used to play, then I'd be surprised if something doesn't trigger me into wanting to, to, to do more. At the moment, I'm just trying to keep my expectations low mm. and the public's expectations because I don't want to you know, come back to a tournament, lose the first match, 6-0 and everyone go, oh, well, that was a waste of time. You know, what, you know, what is, what is he doing? Um, so I'm trying to keep sort of my expectations, outside expectations and try and say, look, I'm, I'm going to, I want to experience walking out into arena again. Um, I realise I'm going to be at the bottom of the rankings. I might not be on TV table straight away, but there's a chance if I get drawn you against. You probably will be. No, but if I get, if I get drawn <laughs> against, uh, say I go to the UK championship, I get drawn against Judd Trump or Ronnie Sullivan, yeah. I'm going to be in the, I'm going to be in the main table. So it's, to see what that'll be like, but yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's a total contradiction to what I used to do. I, I write what you're saying. I mean, how can how can I talk about how I got to the top and then talk about now and say I'm just going to? Is happy there with this? an argument that maybe you're slightly concerned privately about doing what you always used to do and still not winning? So you would rather not do what you always used to do. I think I think in part and. and, and it's whether at 51 years old I can I can still go in and play for six hours. It's whether, you know, near the end of my career, I was just getting bored after an hour. I mean, I had the table at home because the snooker club I was in had, had shut down, so I had to practice at home, which wasn't the same because it's not the same, you know, going to work. Mm. It was like, it's there. 
and you'd, you'd, I'd play for an hour and say, I'll stop for a cup of tea. And then a cup of tea becomes half an hour, becomes an hour, becomes I'll play tomorrow. And yeah. it has to become a job again. And whether at 51, I can do that. I've got that in me to have that dedication. Um, I sense it all comes back to winning though. And if you mm. came back and won, that dedication would suddenly appear. Well, if I came it? back the first time I played in and all of a sudden I won two or three matches, um, again, I want to keep expectation low, but if I thought, well, you know, yeah. I've, I've beat two or three players here, I've played well, that would, I would, you know, be very surprised if that didn't give because me the inspiration your driver, to, that, to, yeah. Your driver is not that you love practicing or you love being on your own in a room or you mm. love traveling the world. Your driver is you love to win. Mm. So I feel if you win again, there's the driver, there's, <laughs> there's the reason you'll be back on it seven hours a day, won't you? No, I, I don't. I don't think um, I'll ever go back to that. I seriously don't. Really? I don't. I don't think I'm. It's physically possible for me to do that. Actually, um, I think I would end up just going through the motions. I think that's that sort of dedication is, I think, a young man's thing. How many sportsmen at that age are, are doing that practice because they've done that their whole lives, and and you really have to have a a will. But you have to really want to do that. I think it's very difficult to to sort of motivate yourself to do that every day. Sure, I've found this conversation fascinating to go through the way that you operated and the mindset you had and and how rigidly you approached your career I think that and correct me if you if I'm wrong you think Damien but I think having this conversation with Stephen what we're picking up here is that he is someone that almost to an unhealthy degree perhaps was very very rigid in his thinking and when things started going wrong when you've got a very rigid way of thinking it's almost impossible to deal with that because you don't know what to do. Whereas now Stephen's coming back to snooker with a sort of a flexible perspective on how he's going to operate. Yeah. And, and let's see how it goes. I've had the metaphor in my head, Stephen, of, uh, you know, when you go abroad on holiday and you see the typical Brit trying to order a, a drink at a bar and they don't speak the language mm. and the way that they do it is they shout louder and speak yeah. slower and they don't become more, <laughs> uh, more comprehensible. They just become more obnoxious mm. in the process. I think you see a lot of sports people do that process of they they just do more of the same thing over and over again. And mm. I think what you're doing takes courage to learn a new language, if you, to mm. be able to communicate and play in a very different way. I, th I think when you look at someone like Ronnie O'Sullivan, who you know, people say he's had such longevity in the game, he's won world championships in different decades. Perhaps you know, almost, I don't know whether that's a better way of, of being, that he's not, you know, his whole life hasn't been snooker. Um, like like me, I mean, my 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 world champion. They all came within ten years. My my domination was at that ten year period, where he's been at the top since you know when he came in when ninety two. I was I was still um, the the number one player, and he's come through, and he's still winning now. The fact that he's not snooker isn't his be on end all. But whether I could have done that, I don't know. Um, you, I'd, I'd never know that. So yeah, it's it's. I say that the, the the doing it I did like totally in with that intensity. Um, you know, you think it would be impossible for that to last as, as long as, 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 as up to now. One thing that surprised me, Stephen, in terms of one of the responses you gave was how important positive affirmation from outside was in terms of boosting your confidence. And but on the flip side of it, how the negative feedback had, mm. had a huge impact on you as well. Where is the confidence in yourself going to come from in the idea that you're not worried about external validation you're happy with what you've achieved and the impact and the legacy that you've left do you ever dwell on that to to reflect on it yeah i mean i'm 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 i'm, I'm 
the first match I play, I'll, I'll be I'll be scared about what's what's happening. But obviously, there'll be a lot of attention on it, and and you know, and if I if I fail, then there's going to be a lot of negative, and and I you know. Nowadays, social media and all that—you know—people are quick to like say, like you know, give, give you immediate um, response to how how you know if I play shit, I'm going to get told I'm shit. You know, basically that's 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 the way the world now. So you, I've got to be. But I've will that be, still bother you? Hmm? Would that? Would yeah, that yeah, bother it, you? yeah, it will because I think. Um, you know, even even going through, you know, I try not to read it all, but even when you know, after the announcement, I mean, it all happened so quickly. By the way, Barry Hearn basically, I played golf with him. He says, "Take your time, let me know tonight." So I was yeah. planning, I was planning on doing this next year possibly, and he said, "No, I need to know now before the season starts." So I basically had to make a decision in a day. Um, so everything happened so quickly. But yeah, it's, it's you know, even looking through, so oh, you know, he, he shouldn't be doing it. He's finished. He's past it. He can't compete anymore. And and all of a sudden, that you, you can say it doesn't bother you, but it goes in. It can't. Yeah, you can't help course. for it not to. But um. But the same took him, and my man, my manager used to slaughter me in like in after matches if I played bad. I mean, like Fergie hairdryer stuff in dressing rooms halfway through matches. Um, I would be getting beat three one for any come in and, and say you know also I mean you can even repeat what he was saying to yeah. me on and then I used to go out and win. It used to work, and another thing that was he kind of took um, you know through through his own situation took a back step sort of second half of my career, and I didn't have that anymore, and I think. I missed that as well. Yeah, you know, I, I responded to that, um, whereas not everyone does. Yeah. I think they talk about footballers now, and some need an arm around them, some need to be bollocked, and that. And I, I like was the phrase "take the stones they throw at you and build a monument." And okay. it's nice that, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of. Uh, do you feel that? Can you you take that criticism and use it as an energy source? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was just. You know, I, I, for example, when I was like 18, 19, or younger, I, I ordered a new car or something that was coming, and, and he'd come in and say, you're cancelling that car. You, you're, you can't, oh. how can you pay for it if you're going to lose it? You, you, you can't, I'm cancelling it and all that, and you're, you're, you're shit. You know, he's, he's taking the piss out of you. Look at the shots he's playing, everything. And I'd go out and I'd be raging, and I'd go out and win. Didn't happen every time, but it was, um, it was a, a thing that... Obviously, later on in my career, I had no one. I felt I had no one to sort of give me a right good bollocking if I was playing bad. Like I, I, I could have responded possibly. But what's interesting, I'm saying, is is the example of the manager. He's a guy that saw you at a young age, and he put his money where his mouth mm. was, and and he mattered. He was significant mm. in your journey. Why would you care about like some nobody on Twitter telling you that you shit? Why would that be significant? They don't know your journey. They don't know. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I suppose it's just, um, it's it's probably mirroring what you think that your game is anyway. If someone's telling you that, you're probably thinking it yourself to some degree. So so yeah, I, th I think that's why it hits home or why it possibly, it, it will hit home as if like you play shit, the same shit with, yeah, because I, you know, basically as I am. So basically a lot of the time it's telling you something that you already know in yourself anyway, I think. But when do you think you'd be able to watch some of these seven world championship victories and actually just go, you know what, I was good and I'm happy that I was good rather than look at it and go, but I'm shit now. What, like? <laughs> I, th I think I did I, I did my book, uh, what's it, two or three years ago and I had to watch all that stuff back. And I never watched my own stuff. Um, and going through um, YouTube and stuff, and, and I, I actually had seen things I, I'd forgotten about. And, and I did, I said to, to Tom, who was my ghostwriter, I said, no, oh, I was pretty good when I was like, you know, <laughs> I was doing things that I was surprised, you know, I couldn't, I'd forgotten myself. Because I think I used to tend to, you know, if people ask me about 
a world test. So I wouldn't be able to tell them what year. I wouldn't be able to tell them because I just. But if it's say a shot you missed, then all of a sudden I think, yeah, about that. That was that. That was that one kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, I think that was the first time I sort of watched back and thought, yeah, you know, I was I was I was, I was pretty good. Because it sounds like it's it's a pretty relentless, unkind place your head at times. Mm. Oh, very, it? very, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the last the last World Championship I played in, I lost thirteen. Two, I think it was to Maguire, and I'd made, very much, I'd made a one four seven in the first round against Stuart Bingham, and I beat John Higgins in the second round. Granted, it wasn't Brown, but then the last match, I just, and, and all matches sort of like the, for the years up to that, I was just sitting in my chair and I'd just slaughter myself basically, um, basically like the, the Twitter said, "Look how shit you become. You can't even play this. You can't even beat this guy." Yeah, you know, and that that was that, and that was. Yeah, I was I was always pretty hard on myself. So you're an all, you're basically an all in kind of person, mm. which is very difficult because then when you're winning games and you're 20 and you're coming through and you're winning world titles, you are invincible, you are untouchable, mm. you are bulletproof. No one can tell you you're not great mm. because the evidence is in front of you that you're fine because you're all in and you're believing that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're getting high on your own supply. Yeah, there's one world championship. I went I went before the first round and told my wife to bring a jacket for the party after love the final. It. I love that story. Wow, just, brilliant. But the just, problem is when you're all in like that, yeah. when you're losing, exactly, yeah. you're all into the losing mentality. You've got further to fall. Yeah. You've got further to fall. So, so now, on the verge of a comeback, we started this conversation where you said only certain people have got the ability to mm. win relentlessly at world level, and you're one of those rare people. And this isn't me fishing for a headline, because I will caveat this with I know that you're willing or you're keen to play down expectations mm. from yourself and from the audience at home at the back of your brain, right deep in there, do you still believe you're the guy that can win a world championship? No. No, not, not at this process. Sitting here now, no. So, no. Could, you, my, become, my could game, you become my game, that guy again? Um, it, if my game technically gets to where I think it is, then, then I think leading up to that, if I play enough events and get that match, because what, I played in the World Seniors recently, lost the semi-final to Jimmy White, and I, I had, my composure wasn't there at the table because I'm not playing enough matches um, I th- and my game is not where I need it to be. But sitting here right now, no, I don't believe I can win a world championship. No, not at all. The example you that you refer to in terms of another player with the longevity that you had was Ronnie O'Sullivan. And Ronnie's spoken about how he invested massively in terms of working with a psychiatrist and helping the mental side of, of life, not just the game. Would that be something that you'd be interested in exploring? I'm not sure. I, I think um, getting to a stage where I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm able to play all the shots that I want to play, because um, I still shot. I, can't, I just, you know, then I just couldn't play shots I wanted to play because my my technique had just gone to pot. Yep. So I think the first thing, the important thing for me now is to get that right first. And when I can play every shot that I want to play, that I know I can play. Um, it's, it's like I'm in the commentary box. I'm watching Ronnie and um, not so much Trump because I don't have his Q power. But um, the shots, right? I mean, I, I know all the shots. I, you know, I know exactly what he's going to do and and, and how right. to do it. But I just physically can't do it because my technique was, has been shot. So um, if I can get stayed back to a stage where that is sound, then well, anything can happen after that. You know, then then I would be prepared to look at other things because right. I'd have that as a solid base. Right. To, to, to you look don't at think the stuff. psychology now could help you get back to that solid base? It's about the no. Sneaker. I think I think yeah. it's purely about technique at the moment for 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 me. Um, is getting that technique back, and and then if that comes back, then possibly look at you know other ways to to, mm. to make myself even stronger. Right. To be because I mean it's, I've been out of the game for eight years, 
Um, I'm not saying there's anyone, you know, there's not a lot of people doing play, things that I never did when I was at the top. You know, there's, I think there's more good players out there. Um, the standard down the rankings is, is, is better. So it's going to be difficult just to, to, to win matches. I mean, to get to the Crucible next year, I'm going to have to win four matches. I mean, to win the world title, when you get there, you have to win five matches. So basically got to win a tournament to get to the Crucible, um, playing some very good players. So um, to get to that stage to do that, you know, my technique is going to have to be sound and then I'm going to have to build up some sort of, you know, composure playing matches. So, so interesting. Listen, we're going to finish with our quick fire questions. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Selfishness. Oh, can I just say I love the fact that's your first one, by the way. Yeah. We've done a lot of these. No yeah. one's ever mentioned that as their well, first no, non-negotiable yeah, told. I've been told it enough. And like, um, yeah. Determined. Self-criticism. They're good ones. They're not easy ones, by the no. way. But they, they, most people just say, turn up on time. Yes. <laughs> what advice would you give to a teenage Stephen just starting out on this journey? Work. I think, I think that's, yeah. I mean, people talk about talent is enough. Talent's not enough. Work, I think. Very briefly, how low do you go or did you go with, with failure, with big, big defeats? I think that the, the worst I got, um, I lost to a guy called Robert Milkins uh, in the second last season, I think, of my career in Shanghai. And in China, they, they, call, they call me the emperor of snooker, the king of snooker. And I'm, I'm you know, fortunate I have so much support there, even, even now when I go. Um, but I'd lost 5-0 to this guy. And I went back to the hotel and, and, I, and I cried. It's the only time I've ever cried, win or lose at a snooker match. So, and that was the worst I ever felt. I just felt embarrassed. I felt everything I thought. Can I just jump in on that, Stephen? What drove you then? A love of winning or a fear of losing? Oh, definitely a love of winning. Was it? Yeah, definitely winning, yeah. That's, that's what motivated me, motivated me to practice, yeah. How important is legacy to you? Yeah, it's, it's important. As I said, you know, I'm still, you know, in China, I'm still seen as like, you know, the, the most successful, the, the, you know, because I've won seven world titles. Obviously, it's debatable whether Ronnie will, will, will overtake that or not. We just have to wait and see. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's, I, th I think it's, I think it's important. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, people, the, the great debates, who's the greatest, me or Ronnie? And I think, you know, as Tag used to say, as long as you're in that conversation, you know, you've, sure. you've, 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 but done how would lot. you like to be remembered when, when you like when you're dead and gone, how would you like? I think I, I think I like to be remembered as someone who changed snooker, changed the way it was played to be successful. You know, it was all about aggressive snooker. Just go for your shots, clear the table. Um, that was that was the way I played. Go for you go for everything. Obviously, you have to temper it a bit when you get older. You, you don't go for everything when 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 you're getting to pro match. But um, yeah, I'd like to think I changed the way snooker was played. And finally, your one golden rule for people listening to this um, to living a high performance life. Agreed. And on that, we shall end it. Thank you so much for being with us. I think like you know, Gecko. it's brilliant to sit here and have, a, a, to have someone talk to us who's so self-reflective and as honest as you are is, is, amazing. is amazing for us. And I think that, you know, I look at it and I think that the, that honesty is the reason why you were so successful, but also that honesty is the reason why you found it so difficult when mm -hmm. you weren't winning because you don't lie to yourself, do you? No. You're, you're totally honest with yourself. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank Cheers. you. Damien. Jake. Well, that was an absolutely remarkable conversation I felt with Stephen. First of all, I want to applaud his honesty. But also, I, I kind of almost feel that... Like, I feel a bit sorry for him that he is so one extreme and then another. Like, he admitted he was all in. And I think that's fine when you're winning constantly. But to be all in and to find that you're not 
as invincible as you perhaps thought you were at some point in your life when it comes to sport must have been a very difficult pill for him to swallow. Absolutely. I mean, the honesty is um, is stunning and, and, and I really applaud him for that. You know, the conversation he had about putting snooker above family and relationships, I think, whether you agree with it or not, it still takes real searing honesty to admit it. I think you're right, though. I think the idea of marrying up that being all in nature with almost like the cruel, relentless inner voice mm. that he had. He said that that's what had stopped him in the end. It had worn him down, the fact that he kept believing he was shit, that he wasn't capable. is a real, a real insight into what it takes in his world to be successful. And I think people can look at that and go, wow, Stephen Hendry is, is ruthless when it comes to relationships and sport and life in general. But I would imagine the most ruthless place is in his own mind, really. You know, he will be so critical of himself, won't he? Yeah, and I can imagine that it can be quite an unsparing, bleak place at times, you know, and that's why I hope that him making this comeback brings him some degree of happiness and he learns to just enjoy the process of playing the game whether it, and not have to associate it with necessarily being successful this time around. I mean, if he never wins another game of snooker in his life, he will still be one of the greatest snooker players to ever walk the earth. And I think some, it's important to remember that from his perspective sometimes. You know, we all yeah. know that. Yeah, I think this idea that you're constantly chasing the next victory, the next high, uh, is referred to as the hedonic treadmill. It's almost like we're constantly looking for the next hit, the next dopamine hit for success. And I think what... Stephen's story, especially like the decline of his later years, tells us is that sometimes we need to be happy with small victories, like intrinsic victories that matter to us rather than the external validation of having to be a world champion to therefore be deemed as a success. Fascinating. Thanks to him. Thanks to you. Yeah, no, thank you, Jake. It was brilliant, that one. Well, Damien, the reaction to the Susie Marr episode from the past week has been amazing. I've just got loads of sort of thoughts and comments that people have sent in to us. I read out David's comment about the pod being a lifesaver at the beginning. I've got one here from D Chill saying the Susie Marr episode brought such a smile to my day with her positive vibes and Jake and Damien obviously learning and engaging as much as I was. I love this conversation. I think that's an important point that 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 person makes on Instagram is that you and I are learning as we go. You know, we're we're picking up stuff all the time from these conversations. Yeah, definitely. I think you'd be. Um, like Clive Woodward spoke about, you can either be a rock or a sponge. And I think we both have the mindset of being a sponge to soak up as much learning from these people's experiences and wisdom. You know, I know you frequently say, Jake, that we add up all the hundreds of years worth of knowledge that people are passing on. I think if you come at it with a sponge mindset, you can absorb as much and then think about how you apply it for our own lives. It's great. And actually, the, the messages have been on fire this week. So many people getting in touch. We've got a message here saying, I'm a single mum of three teenagers. And at 50, I've spent the last two years retraining to do something new. I've got grand plans and a deep need to make something successful, having been a pro sportswoman in the past. I've no one close to me for a sense check or to help me keep going from a business perspective. So your podcasts on my daily runs are amazing for my determination. And Tim also got in touch to say that he worked as a pilot before coronavirus. He's now unemployed after his entire industry collapsed. 
With a few friends, he decided to create a podcast for pilots inspired by the High Performance Podcast to offer support and a community for others in the same position as them. And so far, they've released one episode. Um, They've had one piece of feedback which made them grateful to the High Performance Podcast for inspiring them. So, Tim, well done, man. Um, Send us a message, actually, on Instagram, Tim, and we'll share your your podcast with people as well. Um, Damien, I want to talk to you about Infinite Purpose. Rob Garrett, who's a managing partner at Hezar Ventures, sent us a message saying, I can't recommend this podcast series enough, particularly the episode with Susie Ma. Finding infinite purpose is so empowering and being passionate about more than one thing is entirely possible. What are your thoughts on infinite purpose, Damien? I think it's an incredibly powerful driver. The management writer, Jim Collins, once wrote about this idea of your core, which is your infinite purpose versus your strategy. So his point was that if you have a if you're clear about your core, your strategy can take different forms. So in his original book, he spoke about Nokia. So Nokia's core is about connecting people. And yet they started in uh, in Finland as a paper mill, which was about giving people the means to write to each other and connect that way. Then they went into telephone wires and rubber casing for that. And then they eventually went into mobile phones. But it, their core was always about how do you help people to connect their strategy change with the times and I think when we're all clear about what our core is about making it like for me it's about making a positive difference to people's lives you find different mediums to do that whether it's about doing this podcast or whether it's about going working with individuals or teams or writing books your strategy might be different but the core remains the same shall I tell you something go on for the first time in my whole career I actually feel useful go on well, I feel like I'm doing something that is actually helpful to people. Like, I love hosting football matches and I get gratification from doing live coverage. And I think this podcast has informed the way that I present those programmes as well, because I talk about, you know, the deeper stuff rather than just, you know, tactics or whatever. Yeah. And before that, I love doing F1. I love travelling the world and I love, you know, all of that stuff. And before that, Children's BBC was a great learning curve. But none of those things made me feel like I had a real purpose or I was useful to others, like doing this podcast does. I've never had the reaction or the comments or the messages from people about how we're inspiring them. And I, and, I, and that kind of takes me back to my infinite purpose, I think, because I was, I've been thinking about it so much since we chatted with Susie. And I think I've realised why I now feel useful. is because doing stuff for myself is fun, but doesn't really do much for me. So my infinite purpose is now to empower, inspire and encourage everyone around me through being 100% positive. Because that's what I've realised I love, like sharing other people's stories or having conversations that others get a lot from. So then that means I'm passionate about what I'm doing, because every time I do something, if I say, right, is that going to empower, inspire and encourage others? Yes, it is. That's my passion. So as long as everything I'm doing comes back to that infinite purpose, it means I'm passionate about it. And I've always believed that your greatest energy source is your passion. You don't have to try and find energy if you've got passion for something because the energy's there. So that the infinite purpose thing combined with feeling like I've, I'm of value f- almost for the first time, apart from sort of being a dad and a husband and, and stuff, um, that's it for me. That's, that's the infinite purpose. That's now the sort of guiding light, if you like. And I think that's so powerful for you to share with Jake because I think... I often refer to it when I work with people as uh, as the Gandhi test, because it's Gandhi that said that when your thoughts, your words and your actions align, that's where harmony or purpose starts to come alive. And I think 
for anyone listening to this to realize that keep searching for it keep searching for those moments that 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 do light your soul up that do get you excited that do fuel that passion and then work out how can i do more of that and and it's never too late for any of us like you're describing there you know you've had a stellar career and yet you're describing this as the first time that you're making yourself feel useful is a really powerful message for people to understand that we're not born knowing this we have to go and discover it and find it for ourselves thanks damien it's so nice of you to say so and you're a big reason why i am finding such um a sense of fulfillment from doing this podcast so thanks for, thanks for being part of it a nice message from mark who said um well he's welcoming people to his first ever blog and basically what happened was he was feeling rubbish he was having a really difficult start to the year after homeschooling an eight-year-old um and his work-life balance was completely blurred. And then he said he listened to the Matthew McConaughey episode of the F- High Performance Podcast, which lit a fire inside him and made him realise he needs to find some green lights. And so he's there finding green lights, which is great. And really what he wants to say there is, you know, this made me start a whole new journey. It can do the same for you as well. And I, I just want really people to understand, Damien, that... Like you can get inspiration from anywhere. Susie Ma spoke at the beginning of her episode about watching a Disney film, Soul, and getting some inspiration from that. I don't want people to think, yeah, I really have got this thing I want to do, but, I, you know, a podcast can't change my mind and make me go for it. Like, it can. It doesn't matter where the inspiration comes from. Yeah, there's a great quote that I think about quite a lot when um, I don't know who, who to attribute it to, but it's, uh, I can't teach you anything. We can only make you think. And I think anything that if you've got that open mind, that sponge mentality we just described, you can learn from anything, whether it's a podcast like this and listening to today's guest, Stephen or Matthew, as uh, that comment was about, or the soul film that Susie described. I think it shows you that if you've got that mindset of being open to learn and being a sponge, the lessons are out there for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that for you at home, you've really learned and enjoyed this conversation with Stephen Hendry. I'm not saying that you will necessarily have agreed with everything that he had to say, but both Damien and I think there is a real bravery to come on something like this and be totally honest. I think we both feel, don't we, Damien, that Stephen told us absolutely everything. I don't think there's any any part of that that was him saying, well, I think this, but I'm only going to say this. I think he just told us exactly what he really thought. Yeah, I thought it was incredibly brave to come and just give a undiluted view of the world not worry about uh, sounding whether it's politically correct or whether he feels that it would go down well he was being completely honest and whether you agree with him or not that's not the point he's telling you his journey there's not one way but he's telling us about how he found his way to high performance so huge, huge thanks to Stephen Hendry for coming on this podcast and talking in a way that I've certainly not heard him talk before. Um, Damien and myself, as always, want to thank the whole High Performance team for their hard work, to Will, to Hannah, to Finn from Rethink Audio for what he's done on the pod as well. But most of all, we want to thank you. Just a reminder that for you to rate and review the pod, to share the pod, to tell your friends, to talk about it on your social media accounts, it changes everything for us. So please, if you can, keep on doing that. And don't forget... On Wednesday, really big news from the High Performance Podcast. So check in for a new episode and a big announcement as well. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.